This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. Machine. My name is Kyle. Uh, I'm worn out. Kyle, I'm worn out. And I'm the machine. Well, luckily, Dave, the sun will come out eventually. Oh, I don't gross. know when it's going to come Actually, out. Actually, it's but pretty cold here, is, so it needs to come out ASAP. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today... We're going to be watching the 1982 film, Annie. Come out tomorrow, so you gotta hang on till tomorrow. In today's troubled world, it's nice to know there's still someone you can count on. All right, who's next? Annie. It's the rags to riches story everyone knows. It's the songs everyone loves. It's the movie everyone's waiting for. It's Annie. It's the hard knock life for us. It's the hard knock life for us. Stand and treat and we get tricked. Stand says we get hate. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue the show. And since the machine doesn't help us pay for movies, your help and support are greatly appreciated. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there as well. Now, before we get into talking about this week's film, Dave, this uh, growing tension Gro- that tension. has been mounting mounted tension between ourselves uh-huh. and DDS, DDS, the subletter uh, of our grand uh-huh. arcade emporium, Kyle and Dave's arcade emporium that we've started here in the year 1982. Mm-hmm. I am 100% now, I'm sure, I, I caught her red-handed embezzling funds wait dds She's is a stealing woman in our quarters dd yes d her first name is dd oh right yes. okay dd hess dds you you gendered her nice okay so she she's also how a criminal. many male dds do you know dave <laughs> she's also and don't say dirt diggler don't, you don't go do the easy no, i joke. thought it was an acronym frankly but uh dd no nobody calls their kid dd this shows that you are living in the 60s kyle we need to Get up How about King DDD from, is that Kirby, I think? Something like that. Uh, so what, is, what was she stealing? We don't have any money. The quarters. The yeah, quarters we, people are putting into our oh, machines. People are coming to the arcade. Yeah. Well, that's a yeah. crime. Okay. Well, good thing to put that onto our wavelength <laughs> and we'll probably wait till next week to advance the plot more. Right. Plot. Quarters. Our deep and rich friction. Thieving. Uh, Got it. We have some feedback that I want to get to here as well. This will be very quick. More critique. Um, mm-hmm. I, I come to you, Dave, hanging my head in shame, oh. prostrating myself Gross. and asking for forgiveness okay. Just... because I gave wrong information Classic. in a recent podcast. Obviously. <laughs> in our Grease 2 episode uh-huh. with uh, Matthew K. Begby, uh-huh. we were playing the, the game. We play each and every week of guessing the tag. Okay. And I made the offhand, and we joked about how bad the original Grease's tagline was on the poster. Oh, right? I don't remember. Because I, yeah. I brought it up and said, like, why is, the, why is the tagline for the original Grease, he was in Greece? Oh. 
and we laughed and we laughed and we and we made fun and did some goof em ups about the so fact that it's horrifying dumb, expression. Okay, yep. <laughs> this dumb tagline, only to discover that that is actually incorrect. Mm. The mm. on letterbox.com that told me that that was what the tagline was, I've discovered is not what the tagline is for the original movie Grease. Uh, the original tagline for Grease is, Grease is the word. Greased is the word, past tense. Grease is the Greece, word, which is present tense. a lyric from the okay. show. Like, is it a verb? Are we talking about yeah. like the noun, Grease? Grease, Grease is the word. Grease yes. is the word. No, no, in that sense, it would be a noun. Yeah, right. So Still weird. Still, uh, it's still weird. Still it's weird. not great, right. but better than what we thought it yeah, was. Yeah. <laughs> Just, it should have been lube em up. Ugh, that's even gross. That's even grosser. That's even greaser. That's what I was about to say. My mind is the greasier, is, is the better. Failing me. Yeah. This is not the third hour of podcast recording I've been doing today. Dave. Well, it'll only improve the quality of our conversation. I'm sure. Why start trying to make it good now? We should do maybe some backstory here before we get to talking about our movie. There's three things I think that I've identified here. Number one. Number one. What's your history with Carol Burnett? I like Carol Burnett. I think she's funny. Mm. And I've never met her. So I don't have much of a history with her. I think she had well, a she show had some, she had a, when I was growing up. Yeah, I've seen. Did you actually watch her variety show? Probably just before my time, though. It must have been a re- when. When was the show? It ran for eleven years. Yeah. Well, I don't know eleven, but it was a long running show. It was eleven seasons. Sixty seven. Uh, I don't know when the last. Yeah, that's what I want to say. But let me just. Uh, yeah, seventy eight. It ended the year I was born. First was yeah. I was gonna say so. Seventy eight was the last time that it was. I am reasonably sure on CBC they had this on reruns because I've watched the show, but I was not well, born that's what yet. I was gonna say so. like I don't. I don't <laughs> think I've ever watched an episode like start to finish. Mm-hmm. I have absolutely seen like clip shows and sketches and those things. So I, I'm like I'm aware of it within the ether of popular culture, I guess. Ether. We also grew up in a time, Dave, though, that we potentially, potentially. would just have passing reference or passing mm. familiarity mm-hmm. with stuff that happened like 5, 10, 15, 20 years before we were born, which I don't think really happens anymore. Well, kind of. Unless you are intentionally showing your child something old, but I don't think they are flipping stations and being like, oh, the Carol Burnett show. I guess I'll ch- tune into this for All right, a minute. That's kind of fair. Although, you know, depending on distribution rights in Canada, at least Seinfeld went on Netflix and whether kids are mm. watching it, it is true. kind of revamped. It, it exists. But I think the pool to like more to your point, the pool was smaller and, you know, we had anywhere from three to 12 television stations uh, or uh, channels and even fewer stations. So if you had a big hit like the Carol Burnett show or Monty Python or SCTV or like these comedy sketch shows, Mm -hmm. Kids in the Hall in Canada, they would go on a lot because there wasn't a lot of competition at the time, Um, which is not to say they weren't good. But yeah, like as far as, so I have a feeling there's no way to verify this, I don't think, unless we do a deep, deep Google dive that this show was on at some hour that was accessible to me as I was growing up because I lived before YouTube. So there's no yeah. reason I would recognize the title screen of this show. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I know her a little bit more too because she's been in some Broadway shows and some revivals and that kind of stuff. So I, I do know her from that as well. As I knew of the presence of Carol Burnett, she would show up as guest stars even on current sitcoms back in like the 90s. She would pop in. 
Um, I've I've said this before many times. I was a huge fan of the Rosie O'Donnell show, the talk show, which introduced me a lot to Broadway. Public. Carol mm-hmm. Burnett was a guest regularly on that show, and her coming down the stairs with the curtain rod, yeah. parodying the uh, uh, Gone with the Wind. Those are kind of the two big things. Um, oh, how about I, the? I just found just, this oh, out. Go ahead. She was on a TV movie version of Plaza Suite. Mm. actually playing all three we, roles by the way yeah. we're recording this when presumably i'll be going to new york city which is currently putting on a production of plaza suite starring sarah jessica parker and matthew broderick yeah i think i probably pulled maybe that off. you should go back in time and say how relevant plaza suite is well, Dave, not. because obviously <laughs> well i to be fair to myself i didn't have a problem with the concept of the play i just thought the movie was shit so those yeah, are two different sure. things. Yeah. How about Annie? Just the property of Annie in any type Annie. of form. Do you have any relationship with Annie? Well, I mean, I've watched this movie before. I don't okay. remember how long ago. Uh, everybody knows the two songs that have uh, yes. invaded us. Hard Knock Life most recently. Uh, not that recent with its uh, remix on, is it Jay-Z? With Jay-Z? Yeah. I don't know if I've ever read the comic strip. Uh, I've definitely never seen the musical. Uh, yeah, I know she's uh, a ginger. Well, I mean, I was going to bring this up. Like, Pretty much any redhead, whether male or female, will at some point in their lives be called Annie. <laughs> it just is a thing that happens. That or or Carrot Top or potentially Wendy from like the Wendy oh, yeah, side, if you're true. trying to make fun of them. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember. I, I, I have never actually seen a stage production of Annie, like sat in the audience and watched it. I'm familiar with the music and the plot and, and, and that sort of thing. Just getting into Broadway itself and... Um, but I even didn't see this movie until the last few years. So I did not watch this back in the 80s growing up. This was not on rotation for me. To be brutally honest, I think as I was getting into musicals more specifically, which was like, I don't know, 12, 13-ish, that's when I was really starting to get into them. I know that in my mind, I was like, oh, I don't want to listen to Annie because Annie's a kid's show. Mm. And I don't want to listen to a kid's show. I want to listen to like, the more adult, I want to be in Les Mis and I want to talk about this type of stuff. I wasn't really interested in that. Uh, I'll, I'll leave this into the discussion of the movie, I think, a little bit more. Like, I think that might be giving a bit of short shrift to Annie. I don't, it's not as kiddie as something like, like the stage version of Oliver, for instance. I think that's actually a much more kiddie version of a show than what Annie actually tends to so, be. Sorry, I'm not, f- they might be on the same level. I'm not Maybe familiar with that level, slang but. word. What, what does kiddie mean? <laughs> Just kid. It's for kids. Broadway slang. Like going into the kiddie pool. The tough streets of Broadway. There, of course, you always have to snap in time. <laughs> so you have to like walk down the streets. And <laughs> Actually, I would imagine that happens from time to time. But even when I did watch this movie, the last time I watched this movie, it it is somewhat jarring because all the stuff that, I, just to show my hand here, all the stuff I don't think works in this movie, you would think is like, oh, this must have been poorly translated from the stage version. And none of it appears in the stage mm-hmm. version. All the stuff that I don't really like is stuff that was completely made up for this movie. <laughs> so I don't know. It's, it's such a weird thing. For me, I will say this. I'll say this probably multiple times throughout this show. Apparently. There's the two m- songs that everyone knows, which is Tomorrow and um, Hard Nog Life. The th- a third song in this is called Easy Street. And in my opinion, Easy Street is not only just like great musical theater. It is B, it is near impossible for that song to not work. Uh, and I'll... Bring that back up when we talk about that scene within the movie. Okay. But I think that is such a brilliantly conceived just piece of theater and piece of um, comedy. Other than that, I mean, I'm not a huge Annie like per- 
person. Mm. Like I, I enjoy a couple of the songs, but this creative team really didn't go on and do much of anything else after this. Anything else you want to talk about as far as Annie goes before we uh, go for break? No. <laughs> Boy, we're so we're so uh, high Jazzed. energy here today, Dave. Well, we need to do some jazz it's hands. Annie. <laughs> it's Annie. Well, let me go and take some uh, crystal meth here, and then wow. when we return. And then we'll go for, well, then I'll jazz me up a bit. Then we'll, we're going to go for a break. Thanks for sponsors. And then when we come back, we'll be talking a little bit more in depth about Annie. It's 1982. I feel like cocaine is probably more appropriate. I do have to say, Dave, that the red dress is really working well for you. <laughs> I thought you were actually talking to me and not doing a bit for the podcast because I actually think I look pretty good in this thing. Stunning. And that's not no shame. Like you do have just very slender hips. So. It really accentuates the so the figure. You're suggesting they're not for birthing. You can read into it at whatever you want, Dave. Ooh. All all I know is that when you walked in, the machine did like va 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 voom, like, and then his eyes popped out of his head, and a tongue came out and lolled out onto the counter, and then rolled back up into his mouth. It was weird. Pervert. I've never seen that in real life before. Pervert. And not the machine, Kyle. I'm looking straight at you. <laughs> well, let me tell you this, Dave. Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported, the Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. I get to talk to you about the Edmonton Community Foundation. They are a sponsor here this week. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group. Once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. This year's focus is on making ends meet in Edmonton. If you want to learn more, you can go to ecfoundation.org. What do you have for me, Dave? Uh, well, you know, Kyle, we are part of the Alberta Podcast Network. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember the bit. Proudly, spa, how does it go? Proudly doing something with businesses and organizations from Alberta. You know what is interesting, Kyle, is that uh, we have to sometimes talk about our other podcasts, uh, brethren, siblings. Mm. Oof, I just, is brethren a gender term? I don't know. It's a good question. And if there's anything that's happening, actually, this will have passed. But when we're recording this, it's really fucking cold out. And what do you do when Mm. it's too cold to go outside, Kyle? You listen to podcasts. I don't. Of course. But you do. Uh, so here's a message from one of our other podcasts to tell them, to tell you what they are talking about. <laughs> At least a few of those words are English. So great. <laughs> Excellent. In the small prairie town of Hillview. In the center of town, Hillview's single traffic light shifts from red to green which has no effect whatsoever as Main Street is, as usual, completely devoid of traffic. Four teenagers use their modified hoverboards to sneak into other dimensions. An abandoned cityscape lives half buried in the sand. Welcome to the multiverse. It's dangerous. The entire right side of her body looks like uh, just a glitched out mess. It's stupid. And then I immediately uh, turn around and punch him. It's got parent groups in a panic. Just don't do it, okay? Hugs, not slugs. All right. Thank you. <laughs> and it's the coolest thing ever. This is Slug Blaster. Well, your funeral and ours, I guess. And then Angus points and fires. There's an explosion. A burst of slime goes flying. Your reign of terror has come to an end. It, it kind of scrambles and glitches out. And you can see that this, this is like a smoking crater where your ray gun hit. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> Quantum kickflip. 
a Slug Blaster actual play podcast, part of the Alberta Podcast Network. All right, Dave, we have just sat down and, at least for both of us, have rewatched the 1982 version of Annie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I definitely have some thoughts on this, but before we get into it, if you, someone came to you and was asking, hey, I just decided to rent or stream the 1982 version of Annie, what's it about? I hope you didn't pay for what it. What happens in right. it? Oh, what, um, would you, what would you tell what, them? What is it about? I don't know. Uh, I would say... How do you not know what this is about? It's Annie, you yeah. fucking idiot. Uh, no, I, you idiot. <laughs> uh, there's a orphan and she gets adopted by an angry dude. And then they, I guess, fall into parental love and uh, mm-hmm. avoid catastrophe by singing about tomorrow. So I think something along those lines. Every billionaire's nightmare is that they'll become a millionaire. I mean, I do keep making a, a fine point saying the 1982 film version of right. Annie because I do think fundamentally... The stage version in the movie are very fundamentally different in how they treat certain characters. So it does make a difference, I think. I think about so too. What you're talking I about. Wikipedia did. Wiki? Wicca? Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it Wikipedia? You wikied it. Yeah, yeah. I, wiki, I wikied the uh, synopsis of the musical itself. And uh, yeah, we mm-hmm. should talk about that. Um, but I do right. actually kind of have an idea why it's changed so much too. But we'll talk about that as well. Sure. Well, mm-hmm. let's just bring that up then. What are your impressions about this of movie? Of the movie? Um, yeah. I didn't hate it as much as I thought I would. And yet it's not something I would recommend anyone watching. I think there yeah. are... Like, so, for example, uh, the three Broadway-ish people, uh, Carol Burnett, Burnett Peters, and uh, Tim Curry are fucking hilarious in this thing. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're great. so good. The girl who plays Annie is actually pretty good, you know, as far as uh, yeah. being likely a 40-year-old disguised as a nine-year-old. I mean, she's doing like back She's flips. literally 10 years old. She's literally 10 years old in this movie. She's like punching guys out in alleyways. Can I just... Sorry, so I have to say this. I think I have this weird... Uh, I don't know, psychosomatic thing. Because she looks and kind of also acts a lot like my niece. Like, it is bizarre. <laughs> so, like, I have this, like, fear uh, that she's going to, like, love towards uh, her just because of the way she looks. At it. <laughs> so, it's like, oh, it's like, it's little Hannah instead of, like, little orphan Annie. Weird. So, um, There's no denying that, for example, all the secondary actors, like the kids, are all, they're all ninjas. So the, some of the dance numbers and stuff are pretty bananas, but they're just misplaced and, and like, it's just, it drags on. This thing is over two hours long somehow. Like, I know it's adapted from a stage production and stage productions tend to run a little long, but they run a little long for a reason because they have a story to tell that incorporates the dancing. Right. This thing just kind of like throws a number at you. It's not out of context, but sort of beyond its context. And then you sit there for like five minutes easily of continued singing and dancing. And like, I already got the point when you did the lead up to this song. The song is not incorporated into the plot. So yeah, it, it's okay. It's, I thought I would hate it more. Yeah, it's, it, I don't know. It, it is hard because I just find this movie so incredibly and aggressively mediocre mm-hmm. like i don't have enough passion behind me to say i hated it i definitely don't love it like there's there's some certain scenes i think work better than others but i i, I cannot see this without feeling it's just a missed opportunity in many ways so one of my favorite composers i do an entire podcast about him Stephen sondheim he mentions the idea of adaptation all the time where he's like, it's really hard to adapt a musical that was conceived for the stage because as soon as you put it into a movie version, a close-up or a line of dialogue can be everything you needed to do that a song would do in a stage version. 
So it's hard to do the adaptations well. So I totally get that. Let me start with the things I hated about this movie. I actually think John Huston is not the right director for this movie. Why they chose John Huston, it will never make sense to me why they decided to do this. Maybe he asked. B, I mean, I'll bring this up in the backstory. I think it's just because they gave him a bunch of money. They just wanted him, and so they gave him a bunch of money. But it doesn't fit his style. doesn't fit his, like, other filmography. It's just weird that that's who they decided to go with. B, Albert Finney is actively bad in this movie <laughs> to such a degree that... It's unwatchable. I, I can't believe it. And no one just came up to him and says, like, dude, like, you can dial this down by, like, 500%. Uh, and that's the weird thing, because if you watch any other version of Annie, like, Daddy Warbucks is not, like, a frothing at the mouth weirdo. <laughs> like, that's not what that character is. He's just is. a guy He's like, who decides that he needs to bring a little girl into his house. Uh, and No, I'm just well, joking. It's unfair. It's not even that. Like in the original stage show, it's it's There's to a wife do a newspaper spread to make him look yeah. like he's more generous than what he actually yeah. is. Because he doesn't like kids. And well, they, then they part play of the that thing up is that Andy melts his heart yeah. and like he brings up. But he's not like, oh, like going around and throwing things. It's like, Jesus Christ, dude, like just settle down. Anyways, I hate his performance in this entire movie. And then the final, like, I would say 20-ish minutes Super weird. is a complete invention for this movie. Like, the helicopter rescue sequence, the, like, Miss Hannigan, like, redemption angle that they Tim put Curry into this movie. for a psychopathic some... killer of children. Yeah, what like, the all fuck, that man. stuff is just like, what, I don't, mess. like, what, you're making this into something that it doesn't need yeah, to be. It was a mess. Um, and I feel like if you are doing an adaptation... And you're like, we need to fit this into what we want this movie to be. You've already lost because now you're not adapting something in, into anything that's worthwhile. You should just make an original movie then at that mm, point. Yeah. That's a good point. And, and do it th- that, that way. So those are some of the things I really, really dislike. The, where I'm medium on, I do like Carol Burnett. I've never been a huge fan of how she portrays Miss Hannigan either, though, uh, in that she does some great comedy lines. I actually do like Carol Burnett singing. But she really leans into the drunken angle, which is not really how the stage version has ever been done. She drinks in the stage version, but she's not like falling down drunk like Carol Burnett is and slurring her words and stuff like that. Really, the original production, you can watch clips of Dorothy Loudon, who's, I think, amazing um, and really um, help the creators figure out how Miss Hannigan should be portrayed. She had a lot to do with the creation of that character. She plays it by being scared of children. Like that is how she portrays that on stage. She is terrified of little kids. And so she runs an orphanage and doing something that she's terrified of. And then she pushes that onto them and is terrible to them. But then there's some great dance sequences and stuff. Anne Rankin is great. She was a choreographer and stuff on Broadway as well. So she's, lovely i i love watching just her dance and her movement i think she's phenomenal like i said the easy street sequence i think is probably the best in the like that's the best scene in the movie i think it just realized very well and then it's kind of like uh it's fine <laughs> it's it's okay for the rest of it there's there's nothing like overtly great about this movie i think well i mean just to counter your one like a, a part of your opinion i I don't think it's that fair to judge Carol Burnett's interpretation in this film based on trying to be exactly true to how another person interpreted for a musical. Sure. So just as a just as an evaluation of her in this role, I thought she was perfect. And if she wants to play it that she just hates children, I think it works. If this other actress wants to play it as this uh, inversion of being afraid of children, that works too. But I don't think that they... Mm necessarily should line up because I don't think that was in any way, shape or form going to change how this movie played out. 
Uh, she just needed to be a bad yeah, guy. I think what we can all agree on is that kids are the worst. And uh, if anybody can do like a caricature of uh, someone who's just fucking a mess, it's Carol Burnett. Right. That's what makes Easy Street yeah, she... so good. Every time she fucking slams into a wall, I was I was guffawing. That's sort of a term that you like, right? From the 30s or <laughs> yeah, 40s. Right. Yeah. Anything from, well, this movie's set in the, in in the, the depression, 40s. Right? No, no uh, 30s early 30s. 30s. Yeah. Yeah, so this is set in the three, so it fits into that milieu. So, what's her name? Anne Ryan King. I, so, she's talented. She's beautiful. She worked in this. You know what I hated in this film is when her dance nerves come out, just like I, I said at the beginning, mm -hmm. they come out of nowhere, right? Like, yeah. they're doing the thing where they're dressing their hair, and all of a sudden, she has this huge uh, number. She's so good in it, but it's just like, as a movie viewer, I was just like, where did this come from? Why do I have to watch it? And after it's done, it did nothing for the film. If they incorporate yeah. that uh, choreography, and we see this in, in proper musicals, if you want. Like, if you look at Sound of Music, every time they have a singing number, it's actually part of the plot. This one, they've already mm -hmm. given you the plot, and then she suddenly has to sing it. You know, it's like it's doubled up. And it's a mess, man. This movie could have been 60 minutes long, but and just been well, straight singing. Well, probably not that drastic, but definitely... Did not need to be over the so two-hour mark. I just felt like it was a bit of a waste. Yeah, it's a bit of a waste of her ability. Um, and she's a great actress. Like, it's not like she's not good at dialogue. All her scenes as the, um, I don't know, what is she, attache, personal assistant, uh, second mm -hmm. in command. She's great. Well, the, the other biggest thing that just is bonkers to me, and in a way I kind of get why they went in this direction. So the characters of Punjab and the Asp, are characters in the Annie comic strip. Like, they do appear there, but are not in the stage play. They do not exist in the stage play. And they decide, like, no, what we need to really do? Lean into the racism of the early comic wow. strips and bring them back into this movie. I mean, I think there's probably a way you could include those characters, but as they are, it's like, they don't add anything because they were not supposed to be there in the first place. They're just such a weird addition into this movie. I mean, I... The only, I was thinking about this while I was watching it. I would modify, I don't think it's racist. I think there are stereotypes because they're not negative mm. characters. There's nothing about it that is trying to suggest that either of them is incompetent or has a failing because of where they come from. Mm -hmm. And we could talk about the stereotype of an Asian butler knowing Kung Fu and a Punjabi sure. uh, bodyguard being able to hypnotize animals. But those are just negative stereotypes. I don't think they're racist, right? But learning a little bit about this comic book, I think this is where the writing and adaptation screwed this movie up, which is the comic strip had this huge run during this era and then in the um, post-war sort of revitalization of America. So, it, uh, it would necessarily have had to have a lot of complex storylines. It was influenced a mm -hmm. lot by politics. And in that time, you know, these caricatures of foreign... Uh, people would have played better. And for whatever reason, um, who's the woman that adapted this? Uh, sadly, she she passed away. Carolyn something. Yeah. She died really early, sadly. She got a disease and she died when she was like 51. Sorry, Carol Sobieski. Sobieski. Is her name. Um, you know, I think her and whomever was involved with her directing her to do this, they sought to take the core concepts of what made that comic strip popular and then somehow mush it in with what makes the musical popular and they didn't have the foresight to keep them separate. And I think that's where a lot of the violence and sort of darkness from some of the uh, plot progressions appear from this film. You know, the musical, when I read this, and, obviously, and again, I, I don't YouTube it, I've never seen it. 
but it's such a clean sort of, I can see why it was popular, right? It's got a very simple and direct story. The story is hmm. that Annie and Daddy Warbucks are going to fall for each other and become a parental relationship in spite of all the hardships they're going to uh, work through. And in the end, um, you know, like sort of like truth and love win the day as opposed to this convoluted thing with people trying to murder and fraud and we're, you know, it's just like, I don't know what happened at the end. It was a mess. Well, I mean, e- even in the stage show, I believe there is a, a the character of Rooster, like Tim Curry, Rooster and Lily do pretend to be her yes. parents and try and get her back. But yes, you're right. It doesn't, they overcomplicate that that storyline into this yeah, movie the, the weird helicopter chase like you don't need that yeah like it just goes way too complicated that, that might have like, been the comic strip, very though. straightforward don't you don't yeah. need to make this complicated we, we don't know enough about how it was conceptualized mm-hmm. but yeah you see there's too many mixed tones in this thing for it to actually work yeah in a way like when i was looking at this and one hindsight being 2020 sure but also like what I feel like this is really trying to do in a weird way is trying to be a Shirley Temple movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is going to sound so mean talking to a 10 year old kid without a kid that has the talent of Shirley Temple. But also, like, Shirley Temple hadn't been popular for like over 20 years at this point. So, like, I, it's just like this weird m- a mix of, of references. So, like, you're already adapting a stage musical that was very popular. But they really did update that into a modern context, even though they were adapting something that had been started in the 1920s. And this feels like it's like, okay, let's take that, but let's regress it back in time. And it doesn't really work. And also, we're going to add in all these other elements that don't really need to be there. I guess what I keep coming back to is that this is a feeling of adaptation more than Mm. it is anything else. It's kind of frustrating in some ways because it's just like, like you, you could have made something that was interesting. And in fact, like, if you want to see a good version of this, this is my own personal opinion. There was a Disney made for TV version made in 1999. I think Kathy it has Kathy Bates, Bates as the, uh, Miss Hannigan, mm-hmm. uh, and Victor Garber as daddy Warbucks. Um, I think that's a much better adaptation of the source material, even though they do because it had to fit a 90 minute time slot. Uh, they do cut out a bunch of stuff <laughs> from the original stage show, but I feel it moves better and adapts the material better. I mean, to that point uh, about the adaptation, when this movie started, I was actually taken, I was taken by surprise that it was set uh, during the Great Depression. I had totally forgotten about that. And then throughout the film, you realize you don't, it doesn't need to be. There, There's no plot point that requires them to be in the Depression. So why, when you make- Well, t- you have to go talk to FDR, Dave. <laughs> that is a very key plot point. So why- So you can make, to make some New Deal jabs. Some j- well, you know, all the kids in 1982 loving those New Deal jabs. Yeah, I guess maybe in 1982, you don't want to have a Ronald Reagan- uh, singing about uh, the sun coming up tomorrow, but I mean, maybe you do, I and mean, people loved them. I just, I just feel like it would have been very simple to take this out of such a constricted time period and just simply run with the the plot. Sort of, uh, even if the musical is based mm-hmm. in the Great Depression, just to have some of these scenes, you can still run all these songs and these plot points even today. Sadly, they tried to do that what like ten years ago, and they fucked that up too. Uh, but I've never watched that, so I don't know why. Yeah, I have actually, I was going to try and do it this week and I just ran out of time because uh, it's the only version of Annie that I've not seen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like, just to fill it out and see like what that I heard looks it was like. panned. And I think Cameron Diaz took a lot of stick for that too, didn't she? Uh, Could have, I don't know. Yeah. I, I just remember when that came out, I saw the, not trailer, but like the announcement and my initial response was like, why? <laughs> 
And then it got panned and I was like, I can't spend money on this. So they don't really have any songs in it. Either. Oh, really? Like, there's maybe two or three songs oh, that they actually weird. have. So it's not even really a musical. I don't know. That, that's I, that's what I heard. I'm they not were too it, so scared and on that. whatever that was to go full musical still. Yeah. Times are changing. Anyways, so all of it just feels. I, well, there's there's the other thing. Yes. Like, in a way, I, I, I like the ostentatiousness of like that movie sequence, but it kind of goes back to your same thing again, right? Of going to the movies and like, and you can tell it's just like John Houston behind the camera is like, all these dumb kids nowadays, they don't know what real movies yeah. are. Let's show them what real movies are. And let's do a sequence around it to like literally watch Camille for 15 minutes. Well, and it's like, okay, like. You know what a great miss that was? Like when they do the setup. And they've got the actual dancers and they're sort of doing this adaptation of some of the great first generation mm -hmm. films and, uh, you know, the synchronized uh, dancing, swimming, all that kind of stuff. How is that not just the movie and we could just move on from there? Why does that have to be right. this big choreographed sequence and then we got to actually watch a film? It's, it's madness. And it's not even like the film had a contextual relationship to the plot of the movie at all. It's just this scene of... No, like, yeah. that's the other thing. It's like, none of this makes any sense. But that's another thing. Like, again, that song was made for this movie. In the, in the stage show, they have a song called, I think it's called NYC. And it's all about, like, going to New York City. Oh, so they, like, walk it's down like, Broadway well, or something like that? Yeah. yeah it's like, Classic. well, like, there, again, you have, like, a natural way to include all of these old school musical numbers yeah. and synchronized dancers and, like, choreography. But we don't do it. Like, they had the source material. They just didn't do I it. I can't remember... If he's still alive, why not even do the NYC and have like Gene Kelly hanging out at the corner of the uh, thing, yeah. you know, just saying hi, because they've done it before in musicals. But anyways, uh, again, we don't really know why Carol and presumably John Houston, whoever's in the production team made these large decisions. <laughs> don't you get the sense that there's like two writing influences and they're butting heads so they just threw yes. both pieces in you know they're like you can't do this well we're doing it well, anyway there's, there's, there's just something. there's a reason why at least one of the creative team on broadway i don't know about the other two but one of them i was reading this and he mentioned that he like he did not like the movie because they changed so many things and didn't really you know visualize it well he thought but he says, like, honestly, I, we could have stepped in had we wanted to. We didn't, though, because they gave us a bunch of money. So we kind of just effed off and was like, well, you gave us a bunch of money. But had they decided to, they probably could have exerted more creative control. And he just didn't. Weren't interested. Which is kind of too bad. Well. One last thing I want to talk about before we go into the backstory. Because the backstory, weirdly, is very long this week. I sent you a screenshot, even though I know we were sitting on the same couch watching this movie. I sent you a screenshot when I was watching this movie about like, see this, this orphan in there, in that first sequence when we, when we meet everyone, <laughs> it literally has Coke underneath sure. her nose. She's standing there yeah. wobbly in the, in the stairwell. I'm like, what, who made that decision? Why is this in this movie? It's 1982. They were just like, you know, this is just how it is. You're living on the streets. Actually, it was that actress was just doing you Coke. She's like, oh, I guess I have to hit my mark. Yeah. I don't know. There's so many weird, so many weird moments where maybe we recontextualize it. I mean, I can't tell you what a 1982 audience, if they were more, right. uh, not naive, that's a little dismissive, but more willing to just accept that kids huff sh is a sugar, I think. I don't know. Or flour. I don't even remember what it was. Talc? Actually, they shouldn't because talc, talc kills, Kyle. Talc kills. Um, <laughs> you, you were the spokesperson for so many years. Talc kills. <laughs> well, that's why you don't use baby powder anymore. 
Yeah. Mm. At any rate, because uh, you inject, like you you put into your lungs, yeah, like you inhale in your that's lungs. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it kills necessarily, but it's not very good for babies. Uh, neither is coke. Just putting that out. My there. my mother lathered us in baby powder, oh, yeah. Dave, and we turned out fine. Well, How dare you? Did you though? <laughs> so I I don't know. I I uh, it's like the racism thing, and even I would have these little shitty side comments in my mind, like, oh, this man has just decided to bring a small girl into his mansion. You know, you're just like, what? Can you even make this movie today? Right? Like some of the interactions they have, which is unfortunate. We've become so cynical about it, but. Uh, we have recontextualized a lot of these types of uh, relationships. You know, I, I don't know. It's weird. I mean, we don't even have orphanages anymore, really. But uh, unfortunately, we replaced not, it with the, the same uh, way, foster no. care system. I don't know which is worse. It's uh, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, kids huffing coke. Uh, an old, rich, angry man asking a little girl to stay in his house for a week. <laughs> You know, like well, technically, it's, it's his assistant who asked her to stay in the on house his for order. A week, I mean, yeah, point granted, but still, it's kind of a weird thing that won't work anymore. But uh, that's just, I don't know. We've become distrusting as an audience as well. So. I think he should have started yelling more about the Democrats <laughs> more in this movie. Uh, well, so. that's the other thing. I mean, some of those, you know, the the importance of the New Deal is now lost. I mean, I couldn't even describe mm -hmm. to you what it was anymore because it's. It's not important. We live in a much messier and more ambiguous time politically and economically. So that whole sequence with FDR, it's like I don't, I don't care. I don't care. I don't, I don't want to know. Well, about that's the thing. It's like I know this is a do. very fine distinction, mm -hmm. but I would push back on like, is this musical actually made for kids? All right, right. Um, and I, and I don't know. Like I just sure. I think kids could enjoy it. This is not um, made for kids. But I think it's much more of like a family movie in the same way like Pixar. Like Pixar doesn't make movies for kids specifically anymore. It's meant for like the whole family and kids can enjoy no, one aspect of it. it's made for their therapist. Yeah. Right. But you know what I mean? It's like, is it a kids movie? No. Like, which, I think when you say kids movie, I think of something very different than what this is. Well, I told Kyle when I, uh, you know, not on the couch, but when I turned it on, on the CTV app, it started from the six minute mark which is how much uh -huh. my son gave it before he told me to turn it off. I mean, this is not a kid's movie. If we had survived the first 35 minutes into the first dance number, would he have got hooked? I don't know. It's still such a mess and it's so boring in yeah. between some of the sequences that I don't think so. Uh, but also your main point, I think, is that the plot itself is not something kids care about. You know, they don't care about politics. They don't care about rich people. They don't even care about being adopted. You know, the, the what would draw a kid in is... Um, you know, slapstick falls. Like my kid loves Home Alone. You know, great singing and dancing with like really over the top choreography. There's a little bit of that in this, but it's just not integrated into the movie properly, in my opinion. And uh, humor that's more generalized. I mean, I think this is still written for adults. I mean, Broadway, I suspect, and never wanted kids in the theaters until probably the 90s, right? I mean, that's not a paying audience. Uh, people used to dress up for this shit, so... Um, no, you're right. I think, like, I mean, that's an entire history unto itself. The The biggest drivers for Broadway even now are not kids shows. They're stuff that at bare minimum teenagers can right. do. So you go as a family, mother, father, teenagers are going to go to. But like actual kids productions run very short runs. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, now maybe there's more money in it now because we have a uh, the middle classes make more money, but things have become more accessible to them. So we're poorer on a whole. Are you part. saying tickets that cost $200 are not economical <laughs> well, kids, for the normal family nowadays? True kids productions are not $200 tickets, right? 
Now, right. productions like this that are for kids in quotation marks or have kid characters, they're $200 tickets because they still want uh, not just adults, but mm. they want upper middle class adults. But is that going to be choreographed by Tommy Tim? <laughs> Probably not. Well, there's Dave. a Probably kids not. theater here in Calgary. I think the tickets are 20 bucks. It's somewhere in the Northeast. And we saw two productions. Yeah. I literally live right across oh. the street from yeah, it. Yeah, it's so. good. <laughs> and, and they have some very good actors and we had fun. We saw one with... Uh, it's a Curious George, and we saw another one with another kid's character, and those are kids' productions. You know, they're adapted from kids' books, and they have uh, song and dance numbers, and they're great. They're fun to watch. Mm -hmm. uh, they would not put on a, a production of Annie, just watching kids uh, indentured by an angry or scared woman doing sweeping. I don't, uh, know. I don't know. I think, again, I think the stage version probably works better for kids than the movie version is going to. Bored. But I guess I'll have to be proven wrong. Listen, Dave, let's do some backstory here. This movie opened up on May 21st, 1982. It's rated 3.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd, 6.6 .6 out of 10 on IMDb, has a 39 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes, it's actually certified rotten. 53% is all they got from 30 critics, and it has a 69% from 250,000 plus users. That's a lot of a lot of reviews. Um, I mean, that's like medium. People are not like Well, we've joyful watched some movies movie, that but... have like 20. <laughs> sure. It's available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can buy or rent it on iTunes or YouTube. And in Canada, at least, you can stream it on the CTV app. You do have to watch a lot of crappy commercials, though. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Who was it? There's... Justin Haver, the real estate agent. Jesus Christ. Oh, yes. All the time. Uh, I'm never buying from and you. And the NDP is pushing much. really hard. I, for international people, you don't know this, but Calgary is a very conservative, mm -hmm. conservative politically, and there's a left-leaning party. That's Bet like, you the NDP would try to pass the New Deal and bankrupt our country, Dave. <laughs> but they're pushing hard because, uh, yeah, I can't believe how many commercials I've watched in this movie alone. Oh, my so God. So, Dave, the, the budget for this movie was $35 million, which I that. think is the biggest we've come across yeah. here so far. Yeah. It would go on to make $57 million, which Not a is $169 million yeah. adjusted for inflation. Now, even though that would make it the 10th highest grossing movie of the year. It's not high. Eh? I still think that that's a disappointment for what they were anticipating this movie. Yeah, for the 10th highest at 50 million. I feel like 1971 had some bigger numbers already. <laughs> I don't remember the specific numbers, but some of those movies made a lot more money than $50 million. Um, I'd have to go back and check. I think you, I think it would probably be around, like the 10th spot would probably be around the same mm -hmm. thing. But uh, the difference being is that they paid so much money for the rights of this movie. I think about 9 million of that $35 million budget was just purchasing the rights to Annie to make a movie out of it. No wonder the writers are like, you know what, do whatever you want. I mean, we're, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> Three mil each. But because it was such a big thing on Broadway, I'm sure they were thinking, oh, this, this, this is like a, an $80 million movie. Like they were sure. banking on Could it have been. That, yeah. Should have put in more jokes about Roosevelt. His plot description is a spunky young orphan is taken in by a rich eccentric, much to the chagrin of the cantankerous woman who runs the orphanage. Have a kid read that description and see if they know what the hell you're talking about. Um, I don't think adults even know what cantankerous means anymore. <laughs> cantankerous. Spunky. What does that mean? <laughs> I can't search for that on my, my company's browser. Okay, so now comes the time, Dave, that we play Guess, Guess That, that Tag. 
You know, when you go to the movie theater, you see the posters up on the wall playing the upcoming films. And very often there will be something called the tagline, a phrase or a, uh, something to encourage you to come and see this movie, a little aperitif to whet your appetite. I'm going to read to you three options here. One of these is the actual tagline that appeared on the poster for Annie, and the other two are completely made up. I just made them up by myself. Is a tagline for 1982's Annie, the movie you'll love today and tomorrow. Is it the movie of tomorrow? Or is it three, the movie with the orphan everybody loves? Ooh. What was the first one again? The movie that you The movie love you'll today love today and tomorrow. And tomorrow. And the third one is everyone's favorite. The movie orphan. with the orphan everybody loves. Shit. I think it's one or three. I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with three. three. I think one. You're going to go with the movie with the orphan everybody I, loves. You are incorrect. Damn it. Is it one? No, it's number two. It's the number movie two does, of tomorrow. That doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> I know. It, it makes me upset a bit. Uh, tomorrow is in quotes. Yeah. But still, it's like, uh, that's not a great phrase the movie of, of that idea tomorrow? that you have the movie of you know it's so Actually, f- it's so future looking dave you know that i know i know it's the movie of tomorrow the song like that's what it's no, I know. talking I, about i should have realized this movie's written so badly that they would have had a poorly written tagline that's how yeah, i should like, have thought of it right it is bad it's not good <laughs> It's not good. Damn it. This stars Eileen Quinn as Annie, Carol Burnett as Miss Hannigan, Albert Finney as Daddy Warbucks, and Ryan King as Grace Farrell, Tim Curry as a Rooster, and Bernadette Peters as Lily. Now, Dave, I have you've told me I can't do this, but I could probably talk for the next 25 minutes just about Bernadette Peters oh, and how much I love her, but I won't. Mm. I Sounds won't. like you're already starting it. Although she would have just uh, stopped dating Steve Martin at this time in her career. Wow. But and, and, uh, what, what do you have to say about any of these actors? Well, I didn't do any of my due diligence, so I'll let you run. I mean, I like Tim Curry, but yeah. I don't think he... He's like, um, he, he's like who's, uh, Daniel Stern. I know him very well, but he doesn't actually have a big movie career. Uh, he's just so no, impactful I think when he shows up that you know exactly who he is. Because... For a certain age group, Muppet Treasure Island is like this iconic film in your life. Of course, he is in uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I think that's what he'll always be remembered for. I remember him, of course, from Home Alone 2. Right. <laughs> He's the dweeby uh, guy uh, in the hotel. Concierge. Concierge, yeah. And uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I know him nope. from. I think those are the only movies I know him well, from. Apparently, he was in Charlie's Angels, but I don't remember who he played in Charlie's Angels. Hmm. The first one? Yeah, I just remember Crispin Glover. Like, Eileen Quinn didn't really do anything after this. Uh, Carol Burnett had, we've talked about here already. Albert Finney had a great career, like, late-stage career as, like, a character actor. He's the guy who shows up in um, the Bourne films, I think. I'm not... I think... You know what's interesting? I just picked up this one thing about Albert Finney. He turned down a knighthood. Oh, interesting. I think... uh, He's passed away. Yeah, he died. Uh, He's not... Pretty early. Yeah, not... Not that recently, a little while ago. That's the only thing I dug up before, uh, yeah, 2000, oh no, 2019, sorry, I thought it was 2009. If it wasn't for, like, Succession on HBO right now, like, Brian Cox would be in the exact same yes. position of, like, oh yeah, that guy who appears in a bunch of stuff and I don't know what his name actually is. He, he is the uh, groundskeeper in my favorite Bond film, Skyfall. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Of course he is. I don't know why I forgot about well, that. Well, because yes. we thought it was Brian Cox. <laughs> <laughs> you know that white british guy yeah bring him he in. usually plays bad guys and grumpy old men says cocksucker really good 
Oh, he just went there. Cinematography. Uh, he just went, yeah, why not? Just go there. Brian Cox does, I'm sorry. <laughs> cinematography is by Richard Moore. His other top three films as a cinematographer, because he also is a director, are The Wild Angels, The Stone Killer, and Myra Breckenridge. Mm, nothing. Uh, three films I have not yeah, watched, unfortunately. All right. Big Gulp of Air. This is written by... Well, screenplay by Carol Sobieski, based on the 1977 stage musical with a book by Thomas Meehan, music by Charlie Strauss, lyrics by Martin Shaman, which was based on the comic strip Little Orphan Annie by Harold Gray, which itself was loosely based on the 1885 poem called Little Orphan Annie by James Whitcomb Riley. Are you actually going to go into it? It's like a rabbit hole. Oh, Why? Why? Yes. Oh, yes, <laughs> Just Dave, a filler, because we're already done talking about the movie. Yeah, I'm just gonna turn my this mic is directed off. by John Huston. It's too much. There's so much stuff. It's like 15 Dave, Wikipedia pages. Dave, 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 oh my Dave, God. Dave. I'm sorry. I'm I sorry. Can you it. kindly fuck off? <laughs> just... can, you, can, you, can you shut up? Um, <laughs> Why? I did not spend 45 minutes last <laughs> night doing this not to do it That's now. That's <laughs> your fault. Why punish the listeners? It has nothing to do with them. No, this is going to be interesting. I, I swear. Okay. Dave, let's start back in 1985. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> A hundred years, almost a uh, hundred years before this film came out. 1885. 1885. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's start back in 1885, um, almost a hundred years before this movie even came out. So there's a poem that's released. It's actually originally called The Elf Child, but on its third printing, they would update it to be called Little Orphant Annie. And I'm saying that correctly, Orphant, uh, A-N-T, because it's supposed to be orphaned, but they did it with T's back in old English times. That was actually a misprint because the poem calls her Allie with L's. Allie with L's, not Annie. But since then, it's just been Annie. They've just kept it up. Dave, here's a taste of what that poem would sound like. <laughs> Why are <laughs> we here? Water. Uh, yeah, I was looking at the timer on my recording. I was like, oh, this is going to be our most succinct episode ever. But no, no, nope. I won't let that happen. No. So let me get into this, Dave. Let me get into character. <clears throat> The little orphan oh, Annie's come to our like house an to stay. Oh, okay. You're Daddy Warbucks. Let's do it. I am. I, I wish I could do an English accent, but little orphan Annie. Actually, it has nothing to do with Daddy Warbucks. We'll get to that in a bit. The little orphan Annie's come to our house to stay and wash the cups and saucers up and brush the crumbs away and shoo the chickens off the porch and dust the hearth and sweep and make the fire and bake the bread and earn her board and keep. And all us other children, when the supper things is done, we set around the kitchen fire and has the mostest fun. I'll listen to the witch tales that Annie tells about and the goblins that gets you if you don't watch out. Once there oh was a God, little boy who wouldn't say his prayers, and when he went to bed at night away upstairs, his mammy heard him holler and his daddy heard him bawl, and when they turned the kivers down, he wasn't there at all. And they seat him in the rafter room and cubby hole and press, and seeked him up the chimney flue, and everywheres, I guess. But all they ever found was this, his pants, and roundabout, and the goblins will get you if you don't watch out. Some Brothers Grimm's shit. It goes on and on mm -hmm. from there, but that's kind of how it starts. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's a witch story talking about goblins and ghosts mm -hmm. and stuff like that. gook. None of that really has any reference. It's really just the name of that poem that becomes like... I'll ask again. Part Why of the popular is culture. talking about it then? No, we need to okay, know. We need sure. to know this, Dave. We is an interesting Gray, tease, yeah. <laughs> Harold Gray is inspired by this. He knows the, the poem. He knows the, the name of it. He went to school for engineering. 
But what he really wanted to do was break into the comics business, which I find fascinating because we're talking about like early, early comics here mm. when they were still considered like trash, awful trash mm -hmm. things. Smut. Uh, he got to start doing lettering for other comic artists. So he was the guy who was actually writing the dialogue balloons, basically. Um, he kept submitting his own ideas, though. All of those would be rejected by the Chicago Tribune, who he was working for, until he pitched them Little Orphan Annie, which they tested out starting in August of 1924. It got a positive enough reaction that they continued on with it. And then it would become a daily strip starting in November of that same year. Basically, like people enjoy the Americana of it, like that it focused on people being rewarded for being nice. Capitalism. That if you worked hard, right. you'd find satisfaction. And, you know, just a general cheerful outlook on life. It started bringing in other colorful characters. Daddy Warbuck, Sandy the Dog, Punjab, the Asp, Mr. Am. The thing is, is that I think you, you were talking about this, Dave, is that much like Dick Tracy, like the Dick Tracy comic strips, if you're familiar with that at all, is that they actually told longer stories told over time. So meaning like Monday might end on a cliffhanger and then picked up on Tuesday and you have to follow it into the Wednesday. Um, I think the one I remember that I never read because I found it dreadfully boring growing up was Mary Worth. Do you ever remember that comic no. in the comics pages? It was the same thing. It's like you had to read it every day to understand what the storyline even mm -hmm. was that was mm -hmm. going on inside of it. I will say that it, it very much changed over the years. At the very beginning, it really was like the same plot told over and over again, which is like, Daddy Warbucks goes away on business and he has to fend off some like bad person or someone who's trying to get her back into the orphanage so that they can steal Daddy Warbucks's money. That's basically what all the plot lines were. Not enough helicopters. Then it turned into what I am calling the Tintin type of story where she would start to go on adventures like around the world and like it just became an, adv an adventure comic strip with all of these other colorful characters. Gray would mention how much Charles Dickens influences writing, which I can kind of see. Yep. It's the same way Oliver Twist is written, where it's like there's a colorful character is going on adventures. Gray would continue writing this strip until 1968 when he passed away from cancer. Other people would pick it up and continue writing the strip, and that changed over the years. I guess you already looked this up, Dave, but so this started in 1924. Do you know when the last strip of Annie was actually released? No, actually. The year was 2010. Wow. It went, it ran for almost 90 years. And I, for someone who I've literally never seen an Annie comic strip in any no. paper I've ever picked up, yeah. it is bonkers to me that uh, maybe it's a Canadian thing. I don't know. Could be. I don't but know. I mean, how do we have. It ran for 90 years, Dave. Yeah. How do we have. I mean, I know how, but we had the greatest comic strip creator in bill watterson decided yes. to hang up his boots uh, because he didn't After want to sell out or whatever it was yeah, yeah 10 or 15 like, years these keep people keep offering me money and i'm no i'm just gonna retire i guess it's like the jim davies like garfield thing right it's like well they right. keep writing me checks so i'll just keep that's the thing out. and garfield died i still like that carp uh comic yeah. strip and it's basically now on repeat here's the wild thing dave did you know that dick tracy is still published like it's still what? going it started in 1930-something, yeah. so it's at 90 years now, too. Like, people are still writing it? Yeah. What's left? What's left? I don't is know. He, is he a superhero now? I guess he always was. Blockjaw but... still needs to still do stuff, I guess, or whatever the, <laughs> that bad character's name is. <laughs> he I mean, still has to look whole... at his pocket watch and be like, oh, oh my gosh, right. there's a video on there. <laughs> How wild and creative. Yeah. Is he have an Apple Watch now? <laughs> like, it has to be. It's basically everything from that uh, thing. It's what we wear today. Yeah. I was going to say like everything that Dick Tracy could, could do and was seen as so futuristic is like literally everyone everywhere nowadays. So I can't yeah. imagine. Dick Tracy's going to make another appearance in this write-up, by the way. Just, oh, just you wait. Sake. So 
It's already too long. It's already too long. Just... Dave, Dave, can you please shut the fuck up? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So oh, <laughs> now before the 1982 movie version, there'd already been two films made in the thirties about the comic strip character. Both didn't get really reviewed very well. Uh, so it was like the 70, 1977 stage show that really exploded the popularity of this character. The writer of that, Thomas Meehan, looked through a... I don't really know. I didn't go too far in depth into this one, which is like why they wanted to musicalize this in the first place. But regardless, Thomas Meehan... my yawn is being picked up by mm -hmm. the mic? I hope yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, great, great, Dave. Thanks for the support. Thomas Meehan looked through like the whole history of the anti-comic strip that were available at that time. And he was like, none of these storylines really lend themselves to a musical i don't think so he also took inspiration from charles dickens and basically said like let me just write an original story that are based on these characters the like i said the songwriter so martin Sher uh sorry martin shaman who did the lyrics um would go on he was known for directing a bunch of broadway stuff that's where he became much more known for charles strauss is still alive is still alive today at 94 and his other two shows you're going to know are either Applause or Bye Bye Birdie. The original production starred Andrea McCardle as Annie and Dorothy Loudon as Miss Hannigan. And the difference really, as we've mentioned before, is that the stage show is kind of more about Miss Hannigan. Like, I think there's a reason why she wins the Tony Award that year over uh, Andrea McCardle, who's in the same category. There's more for her to do. She's a much more engaging character. Of course, as with any child... Who is cast in a Broadway show? This happens to the Billy Elliots in Billy Elliot. You get to a point where you're too old to be the character anymore. So you have to get replaced on a fairly regular basis. This is just a footnote that Sarah Jessica Parker, this is how she got her start on Broadway, was being a replacement Annie. The show would go on to win seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical. It, it would run for six years. And since then, there's been a revival on Broadway once every 20 years. So in 1997 and 2012 are the two most prominent ones. There's been three revivals in the West End, a bunch of national tours. It's also one of the most popular shows to do in schools. I will guarantee you that somewhere right now, there is a production being rehearsed of Annie in North America. <laughs> it's just done all the time. Now, because you know, Hollywood could see how popular the show was, they come calling and there was a bidding war between Paramount and Columbia to get the rights to Annie. Eventually, Columbia wins out and purchases the rights for nine and a half million dollars. John Houston is chosen as director. The producers are quoted as saying they just liked the out-of-the-box risk for, for, for hiring <laughs> for, him. For I a, don't know what that means. The most established director of the last 35 years or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I just keep coming back to the thing. It's like, there had to be a better director to come at this material. I just really think there is. Anyways. Yeah. Carol Sobieski decided to change a bunch of things we said in the script. For me, the three biggest are that they changed this from a Christmas setting to a 4th of July setting. Not a huge deal, but it does change a little bit of the vibe. Second, that Miss Hannigan has that redemption arc. And lastly, that whole third act, which does not exist. The, the Annie characters in the comic strip, right? So in 2010, last comic is written. Those characters now appear regularly in the Dick Tracy comics. Mm, crossover. They do crossovers. Crossover. So they, uh, it's in the Dick Tracy comics that Daddy Warbucks officially adopts Annie inside of the comic world. And they still go on adventures. So every so often you'll see those characters come in and have an adventure with Dick Tracy. Excellent. Excellent. That's what it's I was the, waiting for. I was just thinking, you know what I really want to know about? Is how Dick Tracy but, 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 and but, Annie got together 
I went on an adventure in 2010. If someone before five minutes ago came to you and like, what comic strip do the uh, do the Annie character show up in regularly even today? There is no way you would say, oh, it's Dick Tracy. Of course, that makes so much sense that the Annie character would show up in Dick Tracy. No, my response is Annie was a comic strip and that would be followed by... <laughs> That would be followed by... Dick Tracy still running? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, shit. I did go down the rabbit hole. I found that all fascinating to kind of uncover. You would. uh, You would. Most of the comics history, because I, A, didn't know that Annie ran that long. I would have been shocked if you told me it ended in the 90s, to be honest with you. I would be like, oh, wow, that ran longer than I thought. Uh, The fact that Dick Tracy is still running is also, like, mind-boggling to me, but... I got up to the point where Harold Gray passed away in the 60s, and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. It's over. And no, it wasn't. No, it kept yeah. going yeah. for another, like, 50 years. Yikes. After your uh, total nerd out there, I mean, I think you can tell that there are too many competing interests. You know, maybe the estate of Harold Gray's involved somehow, but they're trying to mix too many things into this and it's not a musical anymore. You can clearly mm. see that they're trying to pull back. I mean, I'm surprised there wasn't a witch Right? Or one of the kids didn't disappear. I, I bet they toyed right. around with the idea that one of the kids would disappear out of a closet. So if our listeners are considering watching this, I mean, it's not a hard no. It's not on the list of worst movies we've seen in our life. But, you know, I would strongly consider passing it because uh, you can hear these songs everywhere and you don't need to see the movie uh, adaptation. If you're a big Carol Burnett fan, I mean, sure. she's hilarious in this movie. And uh, yeah, I agree with that. If you're a completist that way, I mean, I'm kind of similar, like, it's not awful, not great. It's really there right in the middle for me. Do you have to rush out and see this? No. No. This is not even going to be anywhere near, like, my top 100, like, favorite musical, movie musicals of all time. Um, If you are going to watch it, though, it's it's like, it's fine. Like, you're not going to, it's not going to be an actively bad watch. At least it isn't for me, but it's not great either. Yeah. Just prepare, be prepared to have a drag. Oh, I will say this. The one thing I also found out about the production was for that easy street sequence, it was supposed to be like this very big outside sequence that they spent a million dollars on filming. And then they said they didn't like it. So they came back and just redid the staging of the stage show for the movie. And then it works way better. Well, what was the scene? I think it's when uh, Daddy Warbucks is singing with Annie, but they do this useless set change like they're singing in one room then they go out to the balcony and they come back mm. into the room and you're like you didn't need to do that you and know what is this for yeah it's just to spend money and i think uh, we talked about this with matthew i think that the problem with putting a stage production into a film is yeah there's a total perspective shift you, you know we uh, you talked about sondheim uh, bringing this up you know when you're sitting in your butt in a seat and there's a simple stage even if there's complex set design you have one single view and everybody mm-hmm. stays the same size in your periphery in a film it's the opposite I and mean, you're always well it, it can be i mean there are directors you know with the maybe the tatami shot that we're getting raked over the coals a little bit uh but you know you get a, a this, static this we could have used more tatami shots is what well we're trying to if say. you set it up a musical that way and just let it be a stage production i think it'd be infinitely more successful or if we look at the successful musicals, you need to make sure that the music is incorporated in the narrative uh, telling devices. Like they have to sing, yeah. much like an opera, the way you described opera, they need to be singing what they're doing instead of doing something and then singing about it. I agree with that. And, and I also say too, I always bring up this comparison. I always find the best movie musicals are like my favorite action films where the 
the set pieces, like the action sequences or the the, the musical sequences in, in a musical's case, have to be pushing the narrative forward. Mm-hmm. I think what you're finding about Anne Rankin, yeah, you're doing something cool, but are you making the movie move yeah. forward? And like, really, not, not really. No. So when, when an audience, a movie audience specifically, because I do think that a theater audience will allow there to be more, I don't know, subdued, or like stagnant things for, for a longer period of time, where most movie audiences are like, if you're not progressing this, we're, we're getting restless. Well, I don't know. I, I wouldn't even say that for a theater audience. I think theater energy is already extreme. So even in a moment of, if, if not exposition, at least of just dialogue, there's always impact in a musical production. So even if you have 20 minutes of them speaking instead of singing, it's, I mean, it's literally theatrical. But in a film, it doesn't work that well. Uh, the tones are too opposed and mm-hmm. uh, it's disappointing. I'm disappointed. Annie disappointed me. Go to your room. We're done here. All right. Well, the machine has said that we do have to wrap this up. So first off is Critics' Choice, the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought about this film at the time. Roger Ebert gave this three stars out of four. It's very high. It's uh, Yeah. Well, uh, look at what he wrote, though, Dave. <laughs> Will kids like this movie? I honestly don't know. When I was a kid, I didn't much like movies about other kids, maybe because I was jealous. Why does that kid get to ride a horse at the Derby? The movie was promoted Mickey as a family right. entertainment. But was it really a family musical, even on the stage? I don't know. I think it has. I think it was more of a product, a clever concoction of nostalgia, hard sell sentiments, small children, and cute dogs. The movie is the same mixture as before. It's like some kind of dumb toy that doesn't do anything or go anywhere, but it is fun to watch as it spins mindlessly around and around. Once again, I don't disagree with him. I think he may have given this a star too much. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say uh, he sounds like a Kyle. Pauline Kale. Uh, says this. She didn't much like this, but as a soused, man-hungry Miss Hannigan, the head of the New York City orphanage where Annie lives till the age of 10, Carol Burnett is both hag and trollop, and her inflections spin around and make her the butt of her own sarcasm. She's gloriously macabre. But the rest of this big movie has the feel of a manufactured romp. Annie and the other little orphans seem to have been trained by Ethel Merman. They belt in unison. And when they dance, it's showy leaping about, and the editing breaks it up, making it more hectic. When Annie, who is invited to the mansion of the billionaire Daddy Warbucks, arrives, his household staff dances, and the cutting is so choppy that the pump-and-tumble dancing, arms like pistons and stamping of feet, turns into commotion. Children from about 4 to about 11 will probably enjoy the picture. How often do they get to see a musical that features a little girl conquering it all? 4 to 11, Um, she said? Did Paul and Kale not have kids? No. Yeah, um, because uh, no four-year-old sitting through this shit. <laughs> well, in 1982, maybe they did. No. We don't know about 1982. No, no. Weren't you four in 1982, Dave? I would not sit through this shit when I was four. <laughs> yeah. I suppose her last line here is, as Daddy Warbucks, Albert Finney uh, gives an, a, a smooth, amused performance and models his manner of speech on Houston's awesome velvety growl. <laughs> so she liked Finney. D- uh, Dave, we have to answer the question we ask each and every week. Does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? Yeah, no, no, it doesn't hold up for sure. Um, the only reason why I could maybe see cultural relevance is because those two songs are still part of our ether. The movie itself is a mess. Uh, maybe the musical, I don't think they even talk about the music. I mean, you said actually that schools still put this on. I don't the, the musical, I think, is what is relevant. I don't yeah. think this movie is relevant. Right. Um, and I think that's what even fans of the show are still clamoring for is like the definitive movie version of this material which still has not materialized. So yeah, I don't think the movie is relevant, but the musical definitely is. Mm -hmm. Like the music Mm -hmm. still is, people know those songs that come from this and is still produced. 
people are still going to talk about Annie for like at least the next 20, 30 years. I will say this. One thing we did bring up briefly with Matthew Begbie back in our Grease 2 episode, the weirdness of having a, a, a movie appear on stage and then having a movie version made of that and then a sequel to that movie being made, right? And that hasn't happened very often. Um, Grease 2 is one of them. Mamma Mia 2 is the other one. But there are occasionally musicals that get a sequel on stage like there's a staged sequel to that original musical there's a second annie just wait dave this is, if you don't know there's a musical called love never dies which is the sequel to phantom of the opera so there's things that really? happen they did a, they did a sequel to awful. phantom it's awful it dave. has to be he's dead i mean uh... yeah yeah he is isn't he dave <laughs> <laughs> anyways so th- this was both there's actually two sequels why? To Annie okay. on stage. None of them were ever so successful. It's not just Marvel or Disney. It's just American culture. All right. None of them was ever successful. They were the same creative team, though, that did the original Annie. First one was called Annie 2, Hannigan's Revenge. Jesus. Um, I think, I, I don't think it really even got out of workshops much, but it was being developed. And then one called Annie Warbucks, which did do like an out of town tryout thing, but never made it to Broadway. Anyways, so there's two sequels made out of Annie trying to cash in on on the success. They wanted another. They blew through their first nine and a half mm. million, and they were like, "What do we do now? We got to make another." There was a movie sequel to this movie, a direct to video sequel called Annie: A Royal Adventure. What? Um, but it came out in like the early '90s. Again, direct to video. There's no singing in it, though. It's not a musical. They only sing tomorrow once or twice throughout the movie, and it's just Annie having adventures. Uh, and then we talked about the one in 1999 starring Kathy Bates, the other one that had Quavenzene Wallace, Jamie Foxx, and Cameron Diaz. And uh, just talking about it, there is a national tour of Annie starting very soon. So if you want to catch a production of it on stage, it'll probably be coming to Calgary even wow. fairly, fairly soon. All right. Oh, sorry. Not all right. I'm not going to see it, but Oh, fine. come on, Dave. Yeah. Front row tickets. I have his front row tickets. You need all of that oh, shiny man. Warbucks head right in your face. Oh, wow. All right. Let's keep going. That's what the creators of Annie said. Well, we do need to rate this film, but before we do, that is what Dave and I thought about Annie from 1982. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release two videos each week on our YouTube channel that matches the movie we're talking about that week. On Mondays, we react to the trailer, and then on Fridays, it's a mini review of the film. So if you want to see the entire list of films we watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our letterbox page, letterbox.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar a month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Dave, let's get to the rating of this movie. What would you give Annie 1982 out of five? I'm a bit torn. I, before we started talking, I was going to Kyle it and stay right in the middle at 2.5. But the more we talk about it, the more exasperated I feel. <laughs> and I feel like I got to drag it down to like a two. The, the only saving grace is that I actually, I loved Kara Burnett and, yeah, Tim Bur- and Tim Curry and Bernadette Peters in this. And so whenever they're on stage, regardless of how stupid the ending is, it's actually very, very watchable, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, those performances could handle, stand up. So if you get a YouTube clip of just them being silly, uh, it's watchable, holds up. So I don't know, Kyle. I, I guess I'll go with a two. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's what's, I mean, your original rating is what this is going to average to here then because I'm giving it a three. A three? Uh, wow. Well, 
again, I always talk about this. My threes are the ones that, like, I'm never going to think about this movie ever again, Dave. I don't mm-hmm. hate it enough to give it, like, an awful rating because mm-hmm. I'm just never going to think about it. But it's not good. Like, I'm not going to go out there like, you know what? This undiscovered uh, classic. We're going to talk about Annie. your definitions. For example, the word good. Three hey. out of five is not a bad score. On Rotten Tomatoes, on Rotten Tomatoes, a 60% is a fail. So, uh, on Rotten Tomatoes is, fa- is a website dedicated to trolls. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, Dave. Well, how about this then? Because it's going to average out to that 2.5, it is going to tie with Pink Floyd, The Wall. What do you think is better or worse? How would you, how would you rate them oh, against man. each other? We get a lot of hate on the Pink Floyd uh, video too. You know, honestly, I would watch Annie before I watch The Wall. So hmm. I would put Annie above it. Uh, I guess culturally, The Wall is more important, I suppose, yeah, in some way. That's what I was going to kind of reference. As far as the movie goes, I would also maybe even make the argument the the, the wall. Even though I also was not a huge fan of the wall, uh, we were like the two people, the only two people that didn't like that movie very much. <laughs> I think it succeeds better at what it's trying to do than what Annie is trying to do. Fine. Let me do some math here, so, Dave. One second. Well, entering our list at the number eleven position is Annie. Guess we should figure out what our next film is that we're going to talk about here, Dave. I'm just going to push this button here. Oh, well, we get to talk about 48 hours oh, sweet. next week. So, right. um, I'm excited. I haven't watched that since I was in high school, for sure. Eddie, Eddie so. Murphy's first movie. And when Nick Nolte was not uh, broken. You know, the, Nick, Nick Nolte does that voice in The Mandalorian. I don't know if you've watched The Mandalorian. I have. Yeah. And when he first came on screen, he's just doing the voice, obviously. He's like, I don't. I have to turn on subtitles because I have not a fucking clue what no. you just said. It's like, I, think, I mean, his, I'm pretty sure it's all alcoholism, but uh, yeah. you remember when he was like big, he was almost really big. He right? won people's sexiest man of the year. One yeah. Year, Dave, so. And then he fell apart. It's amazing. Probably second only to the Oscar as far as like honoraries go for, <laughs> for actors. <laughs> all right. Let's uh, let's do it. Boy, I really do hope the sun comes out, though, Dave. Uh, wait, what are we talking about? I fell asleep when you were talking about the history of Annie. Not enough helicopters. <laughs>